0: We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. It's time for early bird registration for the Internal Medicine Meeting 2021. This will be a three-day live streamed virtual experience, April 29th through May 1st. Register now to save at annualmeeting.acponline.org and use the code IM21curb.
1: Welcome back to the curves Well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing? Good I, to see I'm you. I'm
0: doing well, Stuart. I, I'm almost getting used to it's. It's. I'm so used to you interrupting me that when you're not here, it's hard for me to do the intro.
1: Well, that's my plan.
0: So tonight on the show, we have the great Dr. Amber Bird. We're talking about a an update in various preventive medicine services. And before we get to that. I wanted to hear from the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams with, uh, Paul, can you tell people what do we do on this show and remind them about uh, claiming CME?
2: Sure, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And I would be remiss also if I didn't remind you that continuing medical education credits and MOC credits are available through VCU Health Continuing Education. It's for all health professionals. You can sign up at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. just go to that website, you can create an account and collect the MOC and see me credits. Tonight, we talked to the amazing Dr. Amber Bird about some of the USPSTF recommendations and updates and actually some recommendations from other professional societies that have seemed to have been sort of churning out during COVID so much so that I've had a hard time paying attention and keeping up. And so Dr. Bird has updated us on current recommendations for screening and talked to us a lot about preventive care that we we may have missed while we were sort of paying attention to other things. Dr. Bird is a General Internist and Associate Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a proud primary care physician that doesn't mind spending time on the inpatient medicine services. Good for her. She loves curricular innovation and currently leads the ambulatory education and quality and safety education for the residency program. Her current focus is on using quality improvement interventions to address disparities in health outcomes seen in the outpatient practices. So without further ado, Dr. Amber Bird and Dr. The newer preventive service guideline recommendations. Hey,
1: Paul, do you know what the most effective kind of preventive medicine is?
2: I am concerned that you want <laughs> it's to film.
1: it's the kind that prevents disease. Mm. We're talking about preventive medicines, no joke.
2: Mm. All right, I'll well, we'll just leave that there. <laughs> Claire, if you want to put in crickets, that'd be fantastic. You
1: no, know he
0: will. <laughs> Amber, thank you for joining us. And the first question we'd like to ask you is, please tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and include a hobby that you do outside of medicine.
3: Of course, I'm Amber Bird. I am a general internist and a lover of primary care uh, and medical education. I'm from the great city of Philadelphia. Uh, with an unabashed love for Philadelphia sports, both the good and the bad, Uh, a lot of the bad recently. (laughs) And I would say, uh, since COVID, I've channeled my love of running and finding races to run into attempting to make my garage into a very uh, not fancy uh, home gym, which my husband lovingly refers to as my gymash. So um, (laughs) that's usually where I'm spending my time at home.
2: Paul, you want to ask about a book? I would love to. I actually, I so I finished my my book trilogy finally. Um, so I'm now ready for new book recommendations. So, um, I I tend to read books that are less serious than everyone else, um, who's on the show. But I will take any book recommendation from you, Amber. What what's uh, give me a book that I should read? Doesn't have to be medically related necessarily.
3: Yeah. So I'm terrible to ask for not serious books, but uh, I struggled a little bit on this one, deciding between medical or non medical book, and I decided to actually go with one that I read. A little later than probably most people read, which is Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And I picked it because I really, I, it was eye opening for me. I think, you know, we talk about poverty and extreme poverty in the United States, but we don't necessarily really understand what it means to have unstable housing or a lack of affordable housing. And reading that book was eye opening to me in terms of um, just how the affordable housing system works, how, um, how complex finding rentals can be for some of our patients. And I think, especially for patients I see on a day-to-day basis, it's changed the way we discuss their housing. And I think has added another layer of kind of social screening for our visits. So not Mm -hmm. medically related, but I think has a huge impact on um, just how I think about housing security for, for people and the stress it can contribute to their life.
2: Great choice.
1: What about your favorite failure or, I don't know, patient complaint and what you learned from it?
3: (laughs) Oh, gosh, patient complaints. I would have to think about that one. I don't know that I have a favorite patient complaint. (laughs) Um, uh, Favorite failure, I would say, I think about my time in college and uh, my first physics class in college. I Completely failed my first exam. And at the time, I was bartending. And I think um, I would bartend until like two or three in the morning and then try and take an 8 a.m. physics class. Um, and the reason I actually really um, think that's my favorite failure is because I think all of us in medicine are. Uh, we have a tendency to like overachieve or try to give a hundred percent to a lot of different things and struggle with just saying no. Um, and I think it was a great lesson. And you know, if you try to do a hundred percent in lots of different areas, eventually something's going to suffer. So it's taught me to be a little bit more intentional about how I spend my time and understanding that you know it's okay to to say no and leave some opportunities for success in other places. So I'll never be a professional bartender, but. I think I'll do all right.
0: Tell us, be, before we get some picks of the week from Paul and Stuart, tell us about any favorite advice that you've gotten along the way.
3: Yeah, uh, favorite advice, I would say, um, my in residency, I remember one of my attendings telling me uh, very early on that um, being the smartest doctor uh, doesn't necessarily make you the best doctor. I think, it, you know, early on in intern year when you – um, don't necessarily have the skills of all of your peers. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's groundbreaking advice, but I think it was good advice to remind me that all those evaluations that you get that say just read more, that's not necessarily going to make you into a great doctor, but really kind of being intentional about um, using your patients and and the things that you don't know about how to care for them or what's going on with their clinical presentation to drive your learning is probably going to be way more valuable to you than um, trying to pretend that you know everything.
1: Those are some of the most useless evaluations. Did well, read more. Yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) Still see them commonly today.
0: I've worked at at places they try to ban that, but people just like can't even hear, they, they can't hear it. They just keep writing that anyway.
2: Maybe they need to read more. Here's a smart tip about a significant early bird discount. Register now to save the most on ACP's internal medicine meeting 2021 virtual experience. You'll get the unmatched education you've come to expect from ACP in an engaging, richly interactive virtual format. Live streaming April 29th through May 1st. Learn directly from and interact with expert faculty as they address high yield clinical topics across the spectrum of internal medicine. Earn more CME credit and MOC points than ever before, plus get post-meeting access to all scientific program sessions for 30 days or three years with premium access. Network with your colleagues and explore the virtual exhibit hall. Leave with valuable knowledge and concepts that you can immediately apply to your practice. Every year, I use ACP's annual meeting to sharpen my clinical skills and broaden my medical knowledge. I'm looking forward to attending again this year from the comfort of my own home. Catch the early bird discount before it flies away, January 31st. ACP members save $80 on registration. Visit annualmeeting.acponline.org and use the code IM21CURB. Not an ACP member? Then join now and save
0: $330. We've, we've talked about a lot already, and I'm sure the audience is grateful. <laughs> so, Paul, why don't you bring us into something more substantial?
2: Sure. So let's let's start with a case, as we often do. So I'm going to paint a word picture for you. It is 8 o'clock on a beautiful Monday morning. We are at Cashback Northeast Primary Care Clinic. The sun is shining. Your email inbox is overflowing. Your clinic schedule is full of both new and familiar patients. The first patient of the day is Guy D. Lines. He is a 35-year-old male with high blood pressure who is here for a follow-up appointment after initiation of a new medication for blood pressure management. Blood pressure today is 175, or whoosh, not 175, 125 over 70, He has been tolerating the new medication well and is without any other acute complaints. Since you have a little bit of extra time in the visit, you decide to use this opportunity to make sure that he is up to date with his appropriate health screenings. You note that since his last visit, the USPSTF has updated their guidelines for the screening of unhealthy drug use. So before we get into that specific guideline itself, I wonder if you could just, um, Amber, give us a little bit of a baseline about who the United States Preventive Services Task Force are Um, what they do and kind of how they come up with their recommendations, and then maybe we can delve deeper into the newer recommendations they come up with, which is really sort of what we're hoping to talk about today.
3: Sure. So the USPSTF, or United States Preventive Service Task Force, which is a mouthful and hard to remember, um, is an independent and voluntary task force that actually is made up of experts in preventive medicine and evidence-based medicine. And I didn't realize this until a few years ago, when I was digging into a guideline that they actually are volunteers from all different areas of preventive medicine. so it could be general internal medicine physicians, family medicine physicians, pediatricians, behavioral health experts, um, nursing, obstetrics, and gynecology. so really individuals from all different specialties, and they're tasked with making recommendations about prevention in a clinical context. So they really are not doing any new studies, they're not doing any new research, but they are taking the existing research, creating um, kind of evidence-based guidelines based on their overall assessment of benefits or harms of that screening or preventive treatment that they're assessing. Um, you know, I think for me, there's two big points. So, first is that their recommendations overall are for an asymptomatic patient population. So, they're really trying to look at, you know, the average individual who's going to present to your clinic, and you're thinking about um, specific preventive services that would be applicable to them and their age range. Um, and then the other is that, you know, when they are considering these preventive services, they're really just making a recommendation over you know, how good is the evidence that's out there? And what is the trade off between benefits and harms of this service? They're not really considering costs at all in that preventive service. um, And that's not a factor in determining the recommendation that they make.
0: I think it is important to point out, and I can't remember if this is this comes up later, but that the anything that has a a B recommendation or above, if, if it's a preventive service, isn't it free for the patient?
3: Yeah, so um, I, I guess free uh, may not be totally true. It probably depends on insurance and kind of copay status for that individual insurance. But when we talk about government subsidized insurance plans like Medicaid and Medicare, generally those preventive services, if they have a grade B or higher, are covered preventive services.
0: Okay, so not f- not free, but they're covered preventive services. Sorry, Mis- right. probably I misspoke. That's a a big way to misspeak too. If people are, yeah.
2: So I guess that's a. This might be a good chance to ask then if you could just talk us through the grades themselves and exactly what we are to do with them and what they mean.
3: Yeah. So the there are grades, and I think before we get to the grades, it's probably important to just reflect on one other uh, scale that they use, and that's levels of certainty. So there are three levels of certainty that the USPSTF uses: so low, moderate. And high, and each of those levels of certainty are really just based on how good the data is that's out there. So, if something gets a high level of certainty in the recommendation, then really what they're saying is that there are really consistent results from well designed studies um, in a representative primary care population. Um, Moderate means, you know, there's enough evidence out there that we can determine an impact, but maybe the studies aren't really the best design studies. Maybe it's not completely generalizable to our patient population, but we can at least assess the service that we're recommending. And then low is basically saying, there's a lot of flaws, we don't have good data, and we can't assess the impact of this service on overall outcomes for patients, and those levels of certainty matter because they use those with the assessment of the benefit-to-harm ratio of the service to determine the grade. Um, so A and B are basically the the grades where you're going to say yes, I'm going to do this. This is something you should offer. These are uh, situations where there's either a moderate or high level of certainty, and we know that um, the benefits are likely to at least have a um, moderate, uh, I guess I would say they they would have at least some benefit over kind of harm. So the total benefit outweighs the harm in those uh, instances. Grade C is really where you have to individualize to the patient population. So you need to Look at the service that you're recommending, and then you need to look at where the benefits are greatest for that service, and then individualize that for the patient population in front of you. And then D is, I think of just D for discouraged. So this is where we know that the harm is greater than the benefit. And I, I think of, I don't know. Um, So this is where we just can't fully assess the balance between benefit and harm because there's not enough data out there. So overall, A and B do it. C, talk to your patients. D, don't do it. I, I don't know. And you probably um, really have to individualize any decisions you make about that service for your individual patient.
2: So that was incredibly helpful. Thank you for that. But I'm wondering, how often are these guidelines updated?
3: Yeah, so I would say on average, every five years, they're at least considered for update. That doesn't mean that everyone would get updated every five years. If there's not really any new evidence to review, then they may not update the recommendations. And I think we'll see that when we talk about unhealthy drug use. It really was several, several years, I think almost 12 or 13 years before they did a formal update. Um, When they do earlier updates, it's usually because somebody has nominated a new topic for the task force, or they've requested an update. So, you know, the USPSTF will consider any um, public requests for update. It doesn't mean that just because one of us goes on to the website and says, hey, we want an update for breast cancer screening, that they're going to do that tomorrow. But if they get enough public comments or there's enough compelling evidence to say, maybe we should review sooner than the five years, they would do that.
1: That actually is uh, very helpful information because I've been trying to figure out a way to push one thing forward for uh, antenatal screening.
0: I think I know what that's about. Uh, I think <laughs> you do too. <laughs> oh, Iron, maybe. Maybe uh, Amber, can you tell us what what do you use to keep up with with this? Is there an app? Is there? Do you just go to the USPSTF site? What What do you think is the best way to keep on top of all this?
3: Yeah, I wish I had a really glamorous answer for this one. I think I sign up for the updates from the USPSTF. If you go to their website, there's a email listserv that you can click on. And then quite honestly, the other one is Twitter. I think like the MedEd community on Twitter tends to find these updates even faster than I can find them in my inbox at the end of the day. So usually if there's something that's like really big that's happened, I'll see it on there first. So I would say if you are on Twitter, following the big um, organizations that make guidelines in your area, you know, your specialty is probably a great way to to hear about these early.
2: Yeah, it's, so it's one of the reasons I, I, I want to do this episode is because it seemed like USPSCF was working just overtime during COVID, which is the worst time to do it, because I barely had an attention span before COVID, and now I have Nothing at all. And then as soon as that sort of took over my world, it seemed like Twitter had blown up because they made a bunch of recommendation updates and new recommendations. You had mentioned uh, the update to screening for unhealthy drug use, um, which is an update to a prior recommendation where I think they didn't determine there's a whole lot of benefit, but they couldn't determine a substantial benefit to actually recommend it or not, if I'm understanding correctly. So I wonder if you couldn't talk us through what the update um, says in terms of screening for unhealthy drug use and, and what we're supposed to be doing now.
3: Yeah, so I I think you're right. So the prior recommendation was a grade I, which basically just meant that there was not enough data to make any conclusion over whether or not it would be beneficial to screen for unhealthy drug use in the primary care setting. And I will just say that this is different than like screening for tobacco use or screening for alcohol use, which are separate guidelines. So we're not including those in this recommendation. And It's been, I I believe it's been 12 years since they updated this guideline. I I can't remember if the first one was 2008 or 2007, but basically what's happened in that time is with any of these updates, there's just been a lot more data. So there's been about 12 studies that looked at 15 different screening tools that could be used in the primary care setting, in various primary care settings, um, to assess for unhealthy drug use. And so that's other, you know, illicit drug use or prescribed medications that are used in a pattern that is not consistent with the way they were prescribed. Um, so basically, that data showed that there is a net benefit to screening and offering interventions for treatment if they are available in your kind of primary care setting. And so I guess that that is a big So, you know, they're saying screen everyone 18 years and older, but do it if you have services for diagnosis, treatment, um, and appropriate care that can be offered to your patients. Um, If you don't have those resources, there's no clear guideline on whether or not you should continue with screening.
2: So I think, wasn't depression screening phrased in a similar way? Yes, previously, and now I'm losing track because I feel like they've just been updated so much. But I think the prior depression recommendation was the same thing to screen if you can do something about it. Otherwise, we don't know what to tell you.
3: Yeah. And I think that that's part of the reason that the guidelines were a grade I guideline before is because we didn't know the impact of treatment We didn't we didn't have effective screening tools, we didn't know the impact of treatment and so they couldn't really say that there was any benefit at all. Um, but now uh, the the studies that have been done since that time show that really the screening tools are accurate um, for detecting unhealthy drug use. And so one, we know there's a benefit of kind of a good screening tool but then uh, there have been enough studies that have shown a benefit both in terms of, psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy, depending on the unhealthy drug use that's identified.
0: So I think we should make, let's bring this, let's try to make this as uh, concrete as possible. So it's kind of vague, like these services. So they're they're saying the skills or the services to provide effective treatment so what specifically pushed them over into this is it opioid use disorder because now so many more people hopefully are have buprenorphine waivers or x waivers to prescribe buprenorphine is it is it the fact that we're now more comfortable treating alcohol use disorder all of the above why do you think that pushed them in this direction
3: Yeah, so I guess what I would say is that of the studies that they looked at, so they actually, you know, from a pharmacotherapy standpoint, the only pharmacotherapy that was really looked at in the studies that helped to update this guideline was pharmacotherapy for opioid use disorder. So we're talking about naltrexone, buprenorphine, and uh, methadone. And I think, separate from this guideline update, we know that those. Um, pharmacotherapies are effective at decreasing relapse rate and increasing abstinence time in individuals who seek treatment for opioid use disorder. So that certainly is a a very big component to the change in this guideline. Separate from that, they did include studies that looked at non-opioid use disorder, so other, um, you know, illegal drug use or other drug use disorders Um, who were referred to drug treatment programs. And for those, they didn't have to include a pharmacotherapy component. And what they found is that whether it was brief, and they they defined brief as really only one or two sessions of psychotherapy that were less than an hour long, or intensive, which meant two one-hour sessions or more than two sessions was all you needed to be considered intensive treatment, both of those, whether brief or intensive, led to an improvement in abstinence duration, both at three to four months and six to twelve months and so I think that you know the the driver here probably was the more effective treatment of opioid use disorder, um, because that was a bulk of the the pharmacotherapy data. But there were several studies that showed effectiveness of both brief and intensive psychotherapy. And those psychotherapy methods involved kind of standard um, psychological methods like CBT and motivational interviewing at kind of improving abstinence rates.
0: So it sounds like we're going to we're going to be screening. And if we feel comfortable treating opioid use disorder, and we're familiar with the resources for any kind of alcohol or drug treatment in our area, then it'd be reasonable to screen. One of the things I thought was interesting is that uh, they actually included a statement that said, to minimize the potential adverse effects such as stigma, labeling, or medico-legal consequences, of asking questions about drug use and documenting and reporting answers. We should be aware of our state reporting requirements. <laughs> that, that kind of scared me. I'm like, am I going to get someone in trouble by just writing that they like, I don't know, use cocaine once in the eighties or something like that.
3: Yeah. And, and I would imagine that that's really variable by state. As far as I know, you know, here at Cashlack uh, in our home state, that there is no reporting requirement for uh, substance use um, and access to medical records um, is very difficult for employers unless it was through, you know, some some patient approved method of disclosing that information. So, you know, I haven't I haven't been concerned about that when doing screening uh, in in my primary care clinic, but I certainly think it's worth noting and, and making sure that there isn't any mandated reporting in your state. I just, I have not heard of right. that. That just seemed to me like,
0: I, I was like, what could be the potential harms with this? And that was, that was one of the things listed in there. So
2: and I think the wording of the screening, if I'm not mistaken, even specifies that don't do it if there's a chance that it will end up being punitive. Like mm-hmm. I think they use the word punitive. So I actually, I kind of love how thoughtful they are in terms of who should be screened, just to make sure that there are no harms that are coming from it.
3: Yes. And we should probably be really explicit and say that the guideline is for verbal screening. Um, I think that's something that you could actually misinterpret. There is no indication for laboratory-based screening for substance use disorder in the primary care setting. And I think that that um, is something that should be emphasized. This is purely verbal screening to, you know, assess your patient's use of these substances. So... Amber, we
0: were talking about you, you mentioned there's a bunch of tools they looked at. And, and beforehand, you told us the NIDA quick screen is one. So, And this is a I believe it's mostly a verbal thing that you can go through with the patients. Can you talk a little bit about how people might use that? Is that convenient to just pull up in the clinic? I haven't used it before. Is it convenient to pull up and just go through with the person?
3: Yeah. So I think it's probably the easiest and quickest screening tool to use in the primary care setting. I think anytime we're talking about doing more screening tests in a busy clinic session, you want something that is only going to take, you know, five minutes to do for most patients um, at most, because that's probably a quarter of your visit. Um, So the National Institute on Drug Abuse quick screen is basically just four questions. And they're asking about the use of Alcohol, tobacco, non-medical use of prescription drugs, and then illegal drugs. So if you think about it, when we talk about unhealthy drug use screening, we're not actually including tobacco and alcohol in that kind of recommendation. We know that there's a recommendation to screen all of our patients for tobacco use and alcohol. So you're kind of getting three of your guideline recommendations in one screening test. It is um, basically almost like a Likert-based scale that your patients are reporting on. So it just asks, in the past year, have they used any of those substances? And they say either never, once or twice, monthly, weekly, daily. And really just a positive answer on any of those. So anything more than never is a positive screen. I actually don't do this with just a verbal screen because uh, the the website for this is actually great. Um, So if you go onto the NIDA uh, website and you test positive, it automatically takes you right into a separate screening tool called the Assist, which actually allows you to quantify use, and then it will give you an assessment of risk for your patient, and at the end actually gives you recommendations for treatment options. So if you're really, you know, concerned about a patient and you want to be able to screen and then quantify, you know, how high risk they might be based on their current use, I would say go to the website. It's comprehensive.
2: So we, we screen Guy. He has not used any prescription drugs for non-medical reasons or any illegal drugs for the past year. As you're concluding your visit, you take your dedication to preventative medicine to the next level and you're printing out a lab slip for Dave to receive screening for hepatitis C. So, As a reminder, this is a patient who is 35 years old. It is the year of our Lord 2020 right now. Um, But we are now screening for hepatitis C, I think largely based on an updated USPSCF recommendation. Could you talk us through that change and sort of why that actually happened?
3: Yeah. So the new recommendation is a grade B recommendation. So Moderate level of evidence that the net effect is at least, net benefit is at least moderate. Um, To screen everybody aged 18 to 79 at least one time for hepatitis C. The old screening recommendations were screening everybody who was born between the years of 1945 to 1965 at least once. So this expands the population that we're screening. And really, similar to what we just spoke about with unhealthy drug use, you know, all of these screening recommendations, when they get updated, are based on evidence and uh, new evidence that kind of um, surfaces that tells us about uh, the screening benefits in different populations. So basically, we have better treatments now that are effective and safer than our older treatments before 2013. Um, So, you know, overall, there are the Treatments that we use now are direct-acting antiviral treatments, and those regimens are shorter duration, they have fewer side effects, and they have a higher rate of sustained viral kind of remission, or essentially sustained virologic response. Um, So the treatments are very, very good, and the side effects from those treatments are much less than the treatments that we had prior to 2013. In addition, what we know is that the prevalence of hepatitis C, new hepatitis C infections, is actually rising in individuals in their 20s and 30s in the United States. And some of that is associated with increased rates of IV drug use. Um, So, you know, I think when you look at this, we're missing a population that would actually benefit from screening based on the old guidelines. And we now have an effective treatment that is less harmful to patients If you take a look at just studies overall, we know that the benefits of treating chronic hepatitis C um, far outweigh the risk of those treatments now with these new medications. And we know that not treating actually leads to a very high risk of hepatocellular carcinoma and cirrhosis for our patients. And then the only other thing that I think stands out is the guideline goes all the way up to the age of 79. And, you know, surprisingly, and we don't see this a lot in studies, is that, the studies that looked at some of the newer direct acting antivirals actually included patients up until their like early 80s, and that's how we know that treatments are safe up until that time. So the, the guideline recommendation of up to 79 is just to say that if you screen by that age, you know, it's probably still safe in most average you know risk patient populations to go on to treatment um, if they are positive.
0: And we're screening with a, a Hep C antibody and then the we're only doing the PCR test if that is positive as a confirmatory?
3: Yeah, so I think it that's exactly right. Um so you're doing basically antibody-based testing as your initial screening test, and then that should reflex to hepatitis C, like RNA based testing. And that RNA based testing could be qualitative or quantitative, depending on your lab.
2: It's a good chance now just to mention my biggest pet peeve, whereas if someone has a positive hepatitis C antibody, you don't have to keep checking that. You can please, I beg of you, please stop. (laughs) Um, And then I think the other, and I'm not sure there's even a question in here, but I think one of the other things that was interesting about this is reading through the the justification for it, is it really seemed to address health on the individual level. Like really the the idea is that there's this very treatable disease. It prevents hepatocellular carcinoma. But there didn't seem to be a lot of discussion about the population-based level in terms of prevention of transmission among patients with injection drug use or that kind of thing. Like, that seems to not be even a consideration uh, for the guideline, which I thought was interesting. But I guess now that based on what you told us before, I guess in keeping with their overall philosophy of really focusing on the primary care population and not one specific niche patient population.
3: Yeah. And I, I think it gets into that kind of reflects on a question that often comes up, which is, okay, we did this one-time screening. Should we keep screening? And I think. The argument there is now you've moved beyond an average risk patient population, the same way we would think of, you know, if I have a patient with an elevated BMI and I get an A1C once, is that enough? Probably not, right? That's a a higher risk patient population by nature of their other health conditions. And I think for hepatitis C, we almost have to think about that the same way for, you know, IV drug use. They're now no longer in that average risk patient population.
0: And reminder that reinfection is possible, even if they've been treated as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Stuart, do you want to read the second case?
1: Sure. So after we've uh, talked about Guy to the nth degree, you now have another patient on your sunny Monday morning, Mr. Lines. He snags some cold coffee from the workroom. Has he questioned the exact age of your beverage? which is kind of scary. You feel empowered by the goodness of preventive medicine. Scroll through even more guidelines through Twitter. In the hall, on your way to the exam room, Miss Pat Paloma. Well, she's a healthy 24-year-old female here for her yearly checkup. She has had her first pap smear at age 21, It showed no evidence of epithelial malignancy or any other abnormalities. She remembers being told that she would need her next one three years later, as many of her friends have done. However, she was wondering if there are any other options for screening, or perhaps she could postpone testing altogether. Armed with your knowledge of screening guidelines, you feel prepared to advise this patient. So what are the most recent changes to screening guidelines for cervical cancer and have they been affected in this post-COVID era?
3: Yeah, so this is a great time to remember that um, despite how much we just spoke about USPSTF, that USPSTF is not the only group that will give us guidelines and make recommendations about screening and preventive services. And I think just as we mentioned with USPSDF, every group is gonna have their own priorities um, that's going to help to drive their guidelines. So the American Cancer Society, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they're all going to use kind of their preferences their societal preferences and goals to help drive their recommendations based on their um, evidence review. Um, so understanding the the body that's putting out the uh, recommendations can help you to interpret them for your patients when they show up in the clinic. Um, and the example I always use for this is you know, the American Cancer Society is going to prioritize finding and treating cancer, right? Their goal is to kind of eradicate cancer as much as they can. Um, And and they're going to prioritize that at the expense of probably more false positive, you know, test results than maybe another body would. So the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is going to look at overall benefit and harm, um, and their goal is not complete eradication of a disease if that means there's more false positives or more harm. Whereas, you know, maybe the American Cancer Society is going to tolerate a little higher rate of false positives if it means detecting more cancer earlier on. So, with that background, I think the easiest way to, to understand the changes that the American Cancer Society made is to really understand where we started with USPSTF. So, I might just mention those guidelines first which were updated in 2018, and then we can kind of compare them to the American Cancer Society. So in 2018, USPSTF basically added one additional screening option to their cervical cancer screening guidelines for women between the ages of 30 to 65. So the guidelines had always recommended cytology-only-based screening every three years or cytology- with co-tests for HPV for every five years for women between the ages of 30 to 65. In 2018, USPSTF added on primary high-risk HPV testing only every five years, meaning you did not need to do cytology testing with it. And any of those screening modalities was considered to be equivalent for women between the ages of 30 and 65. In 2020, the American Cancer Society came out and updated their guidelines and kind of made a mess of all of the old guidelines. (laughs) So I think there's four big take-home points from it. So the first is they increased the starting age of screening to 25. So they basically said, stop screening between 21 and 24. The second big takeaway was they said that primary HPV testing every five years until the age of 65 should be the preferred method of screening for all women who are undergoing cervical cancer screening. They added the caveat of if you don't have access to primary HPV testing, then you could do co-testing every five years or cytology only every three years, but they heavily emphasize that this is a transitional recommendation that everybody over time should be moving to primary HPV-based testing every five years. And then the final kind of update that they gave was kind of clear guidelines on when we should stop screening after the age of sixty five
1: which says what that if there's no ascus or uh abnormal cells, you just stop screening is that that's is that correct
3: yeah it's a little it's a little bit more detailed, but that's <laughs> essentially the, the takeaway so basically you have to have normal screening for the ten years prior, so that means okay. you have to have either two negative co-tests or three negative uh, cytology only screens within the 10 years prior to stopping. And you could not have had CIN two or higher in the 25 years prior to stopping. Um,
1: Boy, that's gonna be hard to data mine that in my EMR.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. How do you hand it? That's a, that brings up a good point. Amber, how are you fact checking that yourself for when people are 65
3: Yeah. um, Obviously, if you have an EMR, it's much easier. So for me, uh, I have a specific filter on my results in my EMR that looks at cytology only, which is now going to be obsolete because we're moving away from cytology. But that's what I used to use to pull up um, and be able to quickly see what results were available. Um, Quite honestly, it's very labor intensive. A lot of times it's just writing and tracking these results over time um, and and using that to to help guide your decision making, but it can be really challenging when your patients have fragmented care if they're not always coming to you for this testing. Yeah, I dream of a
0: future where like some of these things that would be super useful uses of technology to, to say something redundant. I, it would just I just it would be so great just be like chart. Tell me, has this person had a colonoscopy? I know there's like well, a million nooks and crannies where this colonoscopy or pap or HPV could be hiding
1: it's so funny because that's actually been available since hl7 was standard in 1980s because that's how it's billed to the insurance company so so you if you have access to the actual database for hl7 data you can actually query that specific thing
0: then why aren't we doing this Stuart? because why because Amber, e- making her look through like all because
1: stuff? emrs the 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 developers for emrs have a financial incentive not to offer interoperability i'm sorry it's the truth.
0: <laughs> Do we it's have the to truth. Cut this from the episode. Are they gonna like short circuit our podcast? No, it, podcast I no, it yeah.
1: dude. It, if they want to put a target on me, go ahead because <laughs> that is the absolute truth. There is a financial incentive not to offer interoperability. So each EMR takes the HL7 data and like comes up with their own language. There he is. I knew you were. I knew you were there, Stuart. There we go. <laughs> hey, Stuart woke up. Great, he's here. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, it it upsets me because because I. I Everything that you're talking about, I can do, but the EMR doesn't do it. I have to do it on my own.
0: Yeah, Amber, tell me. It seemed like the change was made maybe for at least two reasons. One being the HPV vaccine. Now the the people, the benefits of that are sort of catching up, and there's less less disease. Can you talk? What What was the what was the rationale for raising the age to 25?
3: Yeah, I would say that the HPV vaccine probably had more of an impact on getting rid of the cytology-based screen, um, particular and and the age I think portion of it, but certainly for the cytology because what we know is that HPV vaccination started around two thousand seven. I would say that uptake initially was shaky. Not many people actually chose to get the vaccine initially, but over time, once they expanded the age range to lower age ranges for patients, they um, the, the rates of vaccination have increased significantly. And if you actually look at population data now, about 50% of women between the ages of 18 to 26 have had at least one HPV vaccination. And if you look at younger populations, like uh, women between the ages of 13 to 17, it's about two-thirds who've gotten at least one HPV vaccination. So the rates have really, really increased. And I don't think we know the full impacts of that, you know, the impact of vaccination on high-risk HPV um, rates just yet for that population. Uh, but we do know that the incidence of cervical cancer is declining with increasing HPV vaccination. Cytology-based screening um, basically is less efficient in vaccinated patient populations because it disproportionately detects changes or minor abnormalities that are associated with HPV types that are a lower risk for cancer. Oh, okay. And so when you think about it, you know, if you're doing cytology only and you're finding these mild abnormalities, I can think of all these patients that we get that get ascus and then ascus again, and then they go for a colposcopy and it's normal, and then you screen them again and they have ascus again, and you're kind of in this conundrum of like, what am I doing with um, screening? You know, if you continue to have high rates of vaccination, there's a chance that you're going to get a higher rate of these kind of mild abnormalities with a lower overall risk of HPV that is meaningful uh, or, I guess, um, has a high rate of leading to cervical cancer. So it's it's a combination of, you know, over time, you're going to get more and more false positives in a vaccinated patient population just because of the changes that cytology detects, um, which tend to be these more mild changes. Is this
0: practice changing for you? Or are you going to start doing at age 25, the HPV test alone and and just n- stop doing the cytology?
3: Yeah. You know, the age portion of this is interesting to me because um, I think when, when we think about the age 21 to 24, you know, I guess when you think about cervical cancer screening over a longer period of time, we used to start at 18 and that got pushed to 21. And now we're kind of pushing to 25. The incidence of uh, cancer in women aged 21 to 24 is low. Um, you know, of all of the cervical cancers that we see in the United States, only 1% of them are in women aged 21 to 24. And then when you look at actual cancer deaths in that age range, it's less than 1% of the total cervical cancer deaths in the United States. So it really is a very, very small proportion of the cervical cancer that we see. Um, and i think if you combine that with the fact that we have higher transient infections in that age range in women between the age of 21 to 24 it it kind of pushes me towards not wanting to screen that population because they have a very low risk for cancer. They have a higher risk of these transient infections that are likely going to clear on their own. And we know that the more procedures that we do to the cervix, the higher risk of future obstetric complications for those patients. So to me, it's a really low value age range uh, to screen. And so stopping screening between 21 to 24, I think is going to be easier for me than probably a lot of patients um, who are accustomed to screening. Yeah. Um, but that I think I would adapt pretty easily. I think the hard part is thinking about using this HPV-based testing for women between the ages of 25 to 29.
2: We, I think we touched a little bit on why guidelines diverge and sort of based on the emphasis of the various societies that actually generate them. But I, I, I think I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you choose which guideline to follow. I, I think we, we touched on that a little bit, but I feel like oftentimes it's not unusual to have guidelines that conflict a little bit from each other. So for you in the primary care setting, how are you choosing sort of um, different specialty society guidelines versus USPSTF versus personal practice? Is there Do you have a, a certain algorithm or a certain um, way that you sort of look at these broadly?
3: Yeah, I I would say, you know, overall, I think the, the tough truth of screening guidelines is you almost just have to get comfortable with reading and interpreting the data summaries that they provide with their guidelines. And it would be much easier to just be able to read the recommendation and apply the recommendation universally. But I think this is what happens. You get different recommendations and for me, I have to understand, like, why there's a difference there. Um, this is a perfect example of where, from a cervical stand, c- cervical screening standpoint, I'm happy to kind of get rid of my screening from 21 to 24. But then when I start to think about women age 25 to 29, I think about how, you know, you're putting those individuals um, through a test that is much more sensitive for cervical cancer, but actually carries a higher rate of false positives. And so there is a potential for more harm in that population from adjusting this guideline. Um, And so when I'm weighing these in my mind, I'm really trying to think about my individual patients in front of me. And I think, you know, this is kind of the nuance of primary care is that there's probably no wrong answer, as long as you're doing some screening for for these women. Um, the most sensitive screening test I think we know is HPV-based screening. But if I have a patient who I know is going to be much more affected by the harm of an abnormal test result, um, which I think is a real harm. I think sometimes we say it and and kind of brush it off, but I think we all can think of patients who have had an abnormal test result that ends up being fine, but the time in between, you know, that colposcopy or that confirmatory test is really stressful for them. Um, I have to weigh that as I apply kind of the screening guidelines. So for me, um, you know, for cervical cancer, I, I look at the data and I say, what am I really trading off here? Um, I think if I was asked how I would apply this to my own practice, I would say I would adopt the, you know, my personal opinion is I would adopt that 25 starting age for screening and then 25 to 29, the HPV uh, only screening or co test based screening may have to be more individual patient preference, understanding the trade-off of, you know, a more sensitive test, but this higher risk of false positives.
0: Paul, should we move on? So from, from Ms. Pat Paloma, I guess she, we had the conversation, she opted for the HPV test to start at age 25, and well, fingers crossed, there's no false positives for her.
2: So thank you, Wado, for your, um, your well wishes for Ms. Paloma. But let's just say something would come back abnormal. Amber, are there any, any apps or any tools that you use to sort of deal with the results of these?
3: Yeah, so probably the easiest to use is the ASCCP website. So if you go to app.asccp.org so app.ascp.org, that is the easiest. Um, but basically, they have a mobile app uh, that you can would pay for, or you can use their web app for free. And the best thing about that is you can actually put in your patient's last two pap. Results and it will take you through an algorithm to tell you what their screening recommendation would be, and all of that is based on expert consensus, consensus guidelines um, for abnormal test results. So it's convenient. It allows you to incorporate different different testing modalities. So let's say our patient had cytology only seven years ago, and then had you know this new uh, HPV-only testing for her most recent test, you could combine those different results to get a recommendation for the next interval screen. Excellent.
2: All right, so perfect. We'll, we'll keep moving on with our busy clinic day. We we walk Ms. Paloma out the door, and we still have a few minutes to tackle our, our looming EMR inbox. At the top of the queue is a message from a longtime patient of yours, and this is an all-time name, Jimmy Halstra. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so happy right now. He is a lovely, healthy, forty-six-year-old gentleman. You can't be forty-six and a gentleman. That's just—that's not a. <laughs> he's just a forty-six-year-old guy, um, who read online that the guidelines for screening co- for colorectal cancer have recently changed, and they are now recommending screenings as early as age forty-five. He has no acute GI complaints, um, nothing systemic that's worrisome at all. However, one of his close friends was recently diagnosed with colorectal cancer, and he is now wondering about your thoughts about starting his screening earlier. So can you tell us what sort of changes, if any, have actually happened with the the colorectal cancer screening guidelines, and then we can take it from there?
3: Yeah. So the USPSTF guidelines haven't changed just yet. Um, So this can get confusing. But in October of this year, they released their draft recommendations. And basically, if we think back to the beginning when we talked about, you know, how the panel works and how people can make recommendations for earlier reviews, um... Basically, the USPSTF uh, did a full evidence review over the past year or so, looking at um, updated evidence for colorectal cancer screening in uh, you know average-risk adults in the United States. And at the end of that, they compile all that evidence and they give us a draft recommendation, where they give us a grade and their recommendation. But before they publish that, they actually um, put it up for public commentary. And so basically, that draft recommendation is published so that everybody can look at it, look at the evidence that they've reviewed, and then make comments about whether or not they agree or disagree or have other things that they would like added for review prior to the final recommendation. And so for the colorectal cancer screening guidelines, the public commentary period is now closed. So, what that means is they've already taken in all those comments, and now we're just waiting for them to fully publish their final recommendation.
2: So, I, I guess two questions. Can you, and the first one's probably not a fair one, but can you think of a time where a draft was put out for public comment, the comment, the public won bananas, and then they just changed their minds and did not end, and then putting out the draft in, in a finished form? Like, I'm trying to think of, it, of an episode, and I can't.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, the most controversial updates I think of are really the breast cancer screening guidelines, but. That, I think, was more like the American Cancer Society guidelines were different and more discussion over the interval for screening. I don't actually believe that that led to a real change in the final recommendation. Um, So not off the top of my head can I think of any where they actually changed the recommendation in the end.
0: When I was reading about this, there was a website I came across. It's called fightcoloncancer.org or fightcolorectalcancer.org. And one of the things they were saying is that this is going to, by lowering the age, it'll make it, uh, 19 million more people eligible for colorectal cancer screening. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was they were calling, <clears throat> and this was not done yet, but they were calling for them to to pay for follow-up colonoscopies for for screening colonoscopies that were abnormal and, and not p- calling them diagnostic colonoscopies because I guess there's a difference in the payment cost for patients. And I just thought that was super interesting. Kind of goes back to the previous comments where we were talking about how uh, screening screening is covered, but I guess if someone gets shunted into one of these pathways where they have abnormal testing, it may not be and they're saying that if it's linked to a screening, it should continue to be considered screening.
3: Yeah, and I think that really depends on insurer and how they cover some of these tests. You know, before and i would say even now when i think about whether or not this would actually change my practice in general when i think about these like updates it, until they're final we oftentimes don't change our practice fully because insurance won't actually cover these yeah. tests and so when you think about screening a 45 year old who may be very interested in colorectal cancer screening if they're going to pay out of pocket for a colonoscopy that's a lot of money and prior to the age of 50 for most of our patients you actually have to you know, order a diagnostic colonoscopy to even get it approved with some symptom for the patient, taking them out of that average risk patient population. Um, so these guidelines are actually really, really important and necessary to even allow for screening um, in kind of expanded patient populations um, because without them, there isn't an option for most patients.
0: Stuart, I, I know you wanted to bring up yeah, Black
1: Panther. I was just gonna say, I just just wanted to say that I hate to be the poor soul who had to go through all the public comments for colorectal cancer screening for this year. Um, (laughs) Because I I just imagine that there were tens upon thousands of comments about Chadwick Bozeman. I just, at least that's the way I'm imagining it in my mind's eye.
3: Yeah, I I guess I would actually say like the one um, part of this screening guideline that a lot of people... Um, could easily tie to Chadwick Bozeman and, and would advocate for is that changing this guideline probably will help if assuming that the adoption of screening was universal, and we really screened everyone between ages 45 to 50, that changing this screening guideline would actually help to decrease disparities in colorectal right. cancer outcomes. Um, so, you know, there there is an argument that like you could actually... Um, have an impact on disparities for black patients if we screened sooner between the yeah. ages of 45 and 50.
1: Excellent.
0: So Jimmy Haustra may have a colonoscopy coming his way, uh, covered by insurance if, if this recommendation goes through.
3: Yeah. And the only other caveat I'll just add briefly is that the recommendation is not just for colonoscopy. I know we yes. we tend to think of that only, but um, when we're thinking about cost and, and maybe how cost could uh, change drastically if we start screening everyone between 45 to 50, really, we don't know what screening modality is most effective. And so right now the guidelines are for any of the um, screening modalities. So colonoscopy, uh, fit testing, fecal occult blood testing, et cetera. Um, so so we could potentially have lower costs if, you know, people were doing fit or fecal occult blood testing in that time period. But
0: so I had one one or two rapid fire questions for you when someone comes in and asks you to screen them for a cancer that we don't have a test, a screening evidence for, how do you handle that? Like someone's like, I want you to screen me for ovarian cancer because I had a great aunt who had ovarian cancer.
3: Yeah. Usually a long discussion. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So oftentimes I, I will be honest and just say, we're not very good at screening for that cancer or the things that we can do don't actually help us to find that cancer um, and and may actually you know depending on what they're asking for may actually cause more harm or might may, may find things that really aren't a problem at all for you I think of this the most with Women who still think that they need a PAP test after age 65 or who are asking for like a regular pelvic exam, when they come in, I will say, I am happy to do a pelvic exam as part of your like annual exam, but I want you to understand that this is not going to help us to find, you know, ovarian cancer sooner or earlier. in, in most patients. And so I don't want you to think that this, you know, is a screening test that is helpful in that sense. And quite honestly, for, for most patients for something like that, you know, women will say, well, you know what, I don't really want a pelvic exam. (laughs) So if you're not, if you're going to do a pelvic exam, and it's not helping to find anything, then why are we doing it? Um, So there's nothing glamorous, just a conversation. And Paul was
0: telling me about uh, patients coming in uh paul you want to talk about this the the this this blast like uh shotgun style screening for for patients
2: oh yeah i mean it's not a terribly exciting story but i just i I, fairly recently i had a bananas patient form that I, i the patient brought in on behalf of his employer and apparently you get some sort of rebate or incentive for actually getting different types of screening done and this was even more exotic than the the carotid intimal thickness screening that you can get in in some van that's parked outside. Yeah, those park are the ones wide. I like get is... more often.
0: The the person that's like, I had <laughs> yeah. a triple A and they they did they did like all this a triple A screening, carotid intimal thickness, uh, ABIs, all this all this stuff.
2: And maybe a Dexa scan, which you can also possibly right. use, which is always nice. But like most of the stuff, but this patient was things like digital rectal examination for prostate cancer and depression screening and a vision check and um, depression screening. So some of it evidence based, some of it. Less so. And it was just sort of this bizarre checklist where he was just incentivized to get his doctor to check it, which is just very interesting. So it was sort of tricky navigating that because I certainly want everyone to have as much money as they can possibly get, but also I don't want to put them through uh, unnecessary testing or things that are not going to further their health. So it was just just a weird situation.
3: Yeah. I'm fortunate in that I have not seen one of those forms in some time, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, honestly, sometimes I will tell patients, um, you know, Every test that we do, uh, there is a reason that somebody wants that test done. And so, you know, especially if they are tests looking at like asymptomatic carotid artery stenosis or things like that, you know, there's some intervention that could be done if we find something abnormal. But if you're feeling well, what's the point of finding something abnormal if we know that that's not going to help you? I mean, I don't know that that's convincing for everyone, um, but maybe one out of five or ten it might be. It's the same way. <laughs> goes the same way I try to convince people not to get MRIs. I always say, "Do you want a surgery on your back for you know something that's really not causing you um, enough symptoms to warrant a surgery?" Um, and I, I think it's it's a challenging conversation. But
0: the therapeutic MRI for chronic low back pain—one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think probably we should ask you for take-home points and thank you for your time. Uh, So tell the audience if they remember nothing else about from this show, what are, you know, two or three things you'd want them to remember?
3: Yeah, I love good take home points. So I would say that preventive medicine is complex. um, And it's not as simple as just knowing what the guidelines are, but really trying to understand who's making the guidelines that you're using, and what the net benefit and harm is to screening in your population. And then I would say, of the big topics we talked about, um, we should be screening all of our adults for unhealthy drug use, um, that for our uh, female patients, we should be reconsidering the age that we start cervical cancer screening, um, and we should be moving towards more HPV-based testing, whether that's primary HPV testing or um, HPV co-testing with cytology. Um, And then I would say, in terms of... uh, Colorectal cancer screening, stay tuned. And I'm sure that in future episodes, you all will be debating uh, the effects and impact of uh, adjusting our colorectal cancer screening guidelines.
0: All right. And Amber, finally, did you want to plug anything?
3: Yeah, is it cheesy to say primary care? Uh, Really, I think that for all of our trainees, both students and residents who are listening, the most exciting and nuanced medicine I think happens in primary care. And unfortunately you all don't get to spend as much time there as we would like. So I would just encourage everyone to take every opportunity uh, to spend time in longitudinal primary care and really delve deeper into understanding preventive medicine because it's a powerful tool for helping our patients.
1: All right, excellent.
2: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole.
3: Mmm,
1: delicious. I
2: don't like that. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
1: That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. so please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at the at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, David Matnick and Peter Wyckoff, and to our social media team Hannah R. Abrams, who's still on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbattelli, also still on Instagram, and Chris, the Chu Man shoe, unfortunately, on Facebook. <laughs> Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham.
0: And I also wanted to thank the great Tima Karganov, who recently updated our episode list on our website. It is now much more user-friendly. It's grouped by category, so please check that out. And if you wanted to claim CME credit for this episode, you can visit curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. That is provided for free to you by VCU Health Continuing Education. So until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado.
2: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you're doubtless hearing behind us. And we should also thank the great Claire Morgan of Notterly, who put that music there and who edits our audio. And as always, our remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.